0: Stay as long as you like afterward and visit and hang out and have a teen time. Um, so we introduced last week our subject and our main textbooks for this class and you had your first taste of the reading, the video, and my wife is reminding me that it is a 20th century video and 20th century book and so it is going to be Uh, A little bit of work to to move it forward 50 years into our contemporary time. But you'll find that when it comes to foundational ideas, presuppositions, that they don't change that much because there's only so many basic presuppositions that are available. and They just tend to mix together and one will become more dominant and leading in different time periods. But basically, if you understand philosophy and theology, the, the basics of presuppositions, you're going to be able to figure out the the flow of history and see how we've gotten to where we are to understand the time that you were born into the time that god has given you to make your mark on the earth you've got to be able to understand where you are in history what came before so if you understand the 20th century and everything that led up to that as francis schaeffer's book is going to do a great job of of teaching you then it'll be an easy step i believe into understanding your time your generation and I'm a generation older, you're all like kids, uh, my kids age, finally my kids are old enough to be in my apologetics class. And as you probably could tell from last week, I love this subject, that's why I volunteered to teach it, and I've been really interested in worldview and apologetics ever since I was in college and seminary. And I've been teaching apologetics for years, and we had an apologetics club, and Deb Bedir, some of you know the Bediers. She was uh, leading an apologetics club years ago while her kids were in this age group. And she had a lot of kids, so she was doing it a long time. <laughs> and uh, then I got involved with her apologetics club, helping out because I was so interested in the subject. And now, after a couple of years break from that and teaching apologetics wherever I get a chance, it's kind of nice to have a big apologetics class again. And I'm excited about you taking in uh, this understanding, this material, because it really does... It's, it's it's a foundation for all of your further education. And everything that you've been learning so far has kind of been building up to, to be able to understand and, and deal with this, that the brain takes a long time to develop. The brain is the most complex thing in the universe. And the development of the human brain, you've got to you know lay the, the basics of learning how to read and write and all of that that you've got up to this point. And, and you're getting to the point where you can really... Uh, understand and, and interact with philosophy and theology and, and the, the big ideas, the big presuppositions, as Francis Schaeffer says. And so I really like teaching this age group, and I'm, I think that you guys are going to get a lot out of Schaefer and what else I can bring in alongside. Um, so if you just came in, uh, we're having Lori Mraz help with attendance and homework checking. So when you see that she's available and you haven't yet shown your homework, you can make your way to the back table there and and let her know uh, how many of the five assignments you got done and show proof for the ones that have some writing involved with it. And we'll be doing that each week. So if you come in, you can just check in with Lori and get your homework checked in. And that'll make it a lot easier to get things flowing as we continue throughout the semester. All right, so I'm still going to be learning names, and I've got the the list of names here ahead of me. Uh, Some of you I know pretty well from previous uh, uh, situations. Some of you are pretty new to me, so if I ask for your name, uh, it might take me a little while, but I'm going to be getting it. All right, so the first thing I want to do today is talk about worldview. And here I've got a foundation of worldview. Uh, with God, man, and the world. And if you understand God, that's a foundation that can help you to understand man. If you understand man, then you can understand the world. And, and these kind of go in order of importance, with the most important at the bottom and, and moving up. And I, I put this here because as we were reading through this week, Francis Schaeffer's first chapter, if you got the book with you, you can open it up there. Uh, my pages are numbered a little bit differently than your pages. I think it's page 16. Uh, in your book, if I remember correctly. But you see, I got a lot of notes here on this page, because I think this is a very important page in the book, and in this introductory chapter, which isn't so much about Rome, but it's just about the philosophy of history, and the understanding of, of world views. And so he says in the paragraph, to understand where we are in today's world, so that's kind of what I've just been talking about, understanding where you are in today's world. and We've moved a little bit from the time he wrote this, but still, still on the same path, the same flow. Uh, to understand where we are in our intellectual ideas and in our cultural and political lives, we must trace three lines in history. The philosophic, the scientific, and the religious. The philosophic, the scientific, and the religious. Okay? So religion, uh, your presuppositions, your beliefs about God, philosophy, Uh, really has a lot to do with understanding what it means to be human, and in science, understanding the world. So you see those three things, and I uh, was picking up on that when I put together that that pyramid of the most important ideas down there at the bottom. Your theology, your religion, your beliefs about God, this really is the most important foundational aspect of any worldview. And... uh, Notice the sentence there where it says towards the bottom of that paragraph, the direction in which science will move is set by the philosophic worldview of the scientists. So the science, it'll go in a certain direction. This is determined by the philosophy and the philosophy is largely determined by the religion. And so this is important for you to grasp at at this stage in your intellectual development. That what you believe about God, your thoughts about God are the foundation of your worldview. It's the most important thing about you. And so thinking correctly about God is what enables you to think correctly about what it means to be human and what it means to understand the world that God has made. One thing builds upon another. Now, when we're talking about worldviews, I want you to recognize that Mankind, the human beings, we're the only ones in the world that has different worldviews. If you you were able to communicate well with monkeys or dolphins or chihuahuas, they all have the same worldview. You know, there's not like different religions among uh, the animals of the world. and, And they don't see the world in vastly different ways and have arguments about the proper interpretation of reality and any of those types of things. They all see it the same way. So only human beings have the ability to be able to think about God, to be able to have a self-awareness and a philosophical understanding, and therefore to engage in scientific endeavor. Uh, No other creature engages in science. Uh, You don't see dolphins making observations and experiments and writing books about what they've learned about the ocean and about different kinds of fish or things like that. Now, we're the only ones that do this stuff. Uh, We're unique. And... Because mankind has different ideas about God that leads to different ideas about man and different ideas about the world, we've got different worldviews, all right? So I'm going to erase this here. And I want you all to take out a blank sheet of paper. I left blank sheets of paper on the music stand there. So if you came in and you grabbed one of each thing on the music stand, then you read my mind. If you didn't then you're going to have to work on your mind-reading skills and go ahead and go back there and pick up one of each of the handouts on the music stand. And this is what we'll do every week. Uh, if I have handouts for you, they'll be on the music stand if I want you to pick them up on your way in. And so one of those handouts is blank. And what I want you to do with the blank piece of paper is I want you to draw a tree. All right? So here's your opportunity to engage in the arts. And I want a tree with roots. So don't start the tree at the very bottom of the piece of paper, but somewhere towards the middle so that you've got room for roots underneath the ground. And I want you to draw some of those roots underneath the ground as well. So everybody, do your best to draw a tree with many branches, a full-grown tree. Any kind of tree you like, because all trees have branches. And I'll do my best tree up here on the whiteboard. And you'll find out that I did not take part class. And I'll let you in on a secret. We're drawing a worldview tree. That's what this tree is going to be. It's going to be a worldview tree. Are you laughing at your trees? You can tell that's a tree, right? While you're drawing your worldview tree, I want to remind you of what Schaefer said in chapter one, the paragraph right above what I just read earlier. It says, most people catch their presuppositions from their family and surrounding society the way a child catches measles. And so you catch your presuppositions and your presuppositions are, are your foundational beliefs that create your worldview. And you catch your worldview from your family and from your society around you, that is, you just naturally adopt the presuppositions that your family and your society has, and if there's competing uh, philosophies and worldview in your family and society around you, you might end up with some kind of amalgam, uh, bringing different parts of worldviews together, and you might not even realize that you've got a part of this worldview and a part of that worldview, and that somehow you fused them together, brought them together, and so this is the way that your, your basic understanding, your basic presuppositions about the world are formed from a very young age. But as you grow, you get to the point where you can start to critically examine fundamental beliefs, presuppositions. And you can start to question and say, well, do I believe what my parents believe? Do I believe what I was taught at school? Do I believe what my friends believe? What Do I believe what was presented in the movies that I watched? And then you get a chance as a critical thinker, and that's what we're encouraging in this class, as well as anywhere where you've got good education going on. We encourage critical thinking where you analyze different presuppositions, different worldviews, and, and try to determine which one is the best and which aspects of the different worldviews actually work and correspond to reality, and which ones are. Foolish, false, and destructive. So we're going to be engaging in that kind of critical thinking. And that's what Francis Schaeffer was all about. If you watched the video uh, or read the short history on the website about Labrie, you're reminded that Labrie means a place of shelter, a place where you can question your worldview, where you can question, is Christianity true? Is secular humanism the right way to think about things and to live life uh, is uh, Eastern philosophy, Hinduism, is that the, the right way of, of understanding reality and living a good life? Where you can have honest questions, honest debate, and look into it with a, a logical, critical thinking mind, and explore and discover. And that's what Francis Schaeffer encouraged, because he, that's the journey that he himself went through, where he wanted to know, is the Bible really God's word? Is Jesus Christ really God, or am I just believing these things because that's what my Christian culture had had told me to believe, and that's what my friends believed, and I just caught this worldview from the place where I was born and where I was growing up. And as he went through that process of of critically analyzing the validity of his worldview, he became very convinced that it was, in fact, verifiably true and reasonable and, and helped other people to find that. And I have that same confidence, that as I have examined my worldview critically, as I have compared it and contrasted it, and it's been in conflict with other worldviews that I've been educated in or I've been around, I've come to find that the Christian worldview is the correct, the the right worldview. And even that very idea that there is a correct worldview is part of a Christian worldview and not all worldviews would even consider that a valid concept, that there is no such thing as a correct worldview, that there are just many different worldviews and everyone has to just choose whatever they like. And if if you like it, then it's correct for you. So you see how there's basic presuppositions that will determine a very different mindset, very different answers, even to different questions. Uh, And so these are important ideas to be thinking through, and that's why I want to start off our class this year with the worldview tree. Now, the worldview tree is not my invention, and probably nothing in this class is my invention. Every man is a quotation from those who have come on before him. And so, I'm just giving to you what I think has been most helpful to me in understanding and what has stuck with me and that I want to pass on. And so, as you look at your tree, I'm going to now hand out a... Comparing competing worldviews chart that is put out by Summit Ministries. Summit Ministries is a Christian ministry that that does apologetics and worldview training. And they've got some great material and some great courses on worldview. Uh, Noelle Badir went through Summit Ministries and, and she would teach this in our apologetics club. And I really liked it. And so I'm holding on to it and using it and passing it on. So let me send half of these around on this side. Half of these around on this side, and you can take one, and it's going to help us to fill in our worldview tree. This will be reviewed for a few of you, but I think it's going to be new for most of you. Uh, raise your hand if you have seen the comparing and com- uh, comparing competing worldviews chart before. If You've seen this before. Raise your hand. A few. Yeah. I'm glad to be able to review it for those of you that know it, but I'm even more glad to be able to introduce it to those of you that haven't seen it before, because this is very, very important, very, very helpful. Uh, This is a huge tool that's going to help you in understanding the world that you live in and why there's so much conflict among competing worldviews. Now, there are six competing worldviews that are listed on this chart, but that is by no means all of the worldviews. But it is the major worldviews, and you'll find subsets of these. There's different kinds of Christians. A a Catholic Christian worldview is is different in some ways than a Protestant Christian worldview. A Mormon Christian worldview is very different from a Catholic or a Protestant uh, worldview. I heard one apologist say that the Mormon religion is more different from Biblical religion than Islam. Islam has more in common with Biblical Christianity than does Mormonism. And so you've got to analyze things, not according to how they look on the surface, but according to their, their fundamental presuppositions. And that's what theologians do, that's what philosophers do. And I hope that each one of you will become a more adept theologian and philosopher because of this course. And you'll be able to think critically about different worldviews and to be able to compare and contrast them. And this is the beginning. Uh, This chart is the beginning to teach you how to compare competing worldviews. And it just gives you six broad categories, but as I said earlier, you will find a lot of individuals who are a mix and match of different elements of worldviews because we live in a very eclectic world according to its view of philosophy and religion, And, and people don't really mind taking some from this worldview and some from this worldview and mixing it together and kind of coming up with their own unique creation and makes them feel like special snowflakes. Um, but, you know, if you want to be consistent, if if you, in your worldview, think that logic is important and that you should not have mutually contradictory beliefs being held at the same time, well, then you want to avoid that kind of eclecticism because, worldviews tend to form because they are logically coherent. That is, they don't contradict themselves all over the place. Uh, But some people don't mind contradiction, they don't really like logic, Um, and so for them, it's fine to be contradicting themselves all the time. For me, I don't really want to be that way. I want to live rationally, I want to live reasonably, I want to live logically, and so I want a consistent worldview. Now, as you look at the worldview chart, what are the six major worldviews that are on there? Read off some of them for us. Yeah, Christianity, Islam, secular humanism, Marxism, cosmic humanism, postmodernism. Very good. All right. So notice that the first two are theistic, and the worldview chart it starts off with theology as the the first in the list. So when you look at a chart, you've got the top columns, and then the side columns, the top columns are your worldviews, the side columns are the knowledge that is part of that system, the, the elements, of the beliefs, the presuppositions, and the most basic, most fundamental presupposition in all of the worldviews has to do with theology. Remember, we have the, the pyramid up here, with uh, your religious beliefs being most foundational, and then your philosophical beliefs, and then science after that. Now, That's why you've got theology and philosophy as the first two on the worldview chart. And then after that, you start to get into some of the science stuff, the biology, the psychology, the sociology, the law, the politics, economics, history. All of that is in the realm of science. And we're talking science in the broadest term. We're talking about human knowledge, knowledge about the world. Uh, And knowledge about the world is in that field of science. So theology and philosophy then form different views of psychology and politics and history. And this shows you how the difference in theology and philosophy that will then lead into differences in the rest of the area of human knowledge and understanding. All right. So, the first two on the chart, Christianity and Islam, have theistic theology. But then, notice that three of the last four are atheistic. And one of the last four is pantheistic. Now, at this point, it might be a good idea to also hand out, or not hand out, you guys got it back on the table there, our terms and definitions. You guys get a a terms and definitions page? So a lot of the terms that you find on the worldview chart, you're going to find here on the terms and definitions handout. And it's important early on in the year to, to learn the terminology. You can't engage in the discussion, you can't engage in the reading uh, if you don't know the terminology. If you don't understand the words that are being used, you'll be like, I'm lost. So that's why I give you the terms and definitions here in our second class meeting, because we're gonna introduce a lot of these terms and talk about them and define them, and then you're gonna take it home and it's gonna be part of your homework to learn these terms so that we don't get confused as we go along and we have a a common terminology among us that helps us to understand these deep subjects that we're talking about. So when I talk about atheism, notice that that is one of the terms on your terms and definitions chart. Who wants to read for the group the definition for atheism? Go ahead, Jace. Atheism, the
1: lack of belief
0: All right, so that's basically just a repetitive definition. The first sentence is saying the same thing as the second sentence in a slightly different way. Now, this definition is generous to the atheist, all right? And that's good to be generous. Uh, when we're, we're interacting with people who are from a different worldview, who have a different religious outlook, who have a, a different philosophy of understanding, and we, we want to be generous when we can, with those people, and use the definition that they would use to describe themselves. So, like, this is a basic principle of Christianity, that we treat others the way that we want to be treated. That's at at the very heart of Christian ethics, the, the golden rule. Jesus Christ taught to treat others the way that you want to be treated. And so, when other people are describing us, we want them to describe us in the way that we would describe ourselves. And not to describe us in some uh, slanted, uh, pejorative way. All right? So if somebody was defining a Christian as, as somebody who believed in fairy tales, uh, that was their definition. It's like, well, no, that's not a very generous definition. That's a pretty you know, rude uh, definition to say, well, a Christian is someone who believes in fairy tales. Um, it's not a very accurate description because lots of people believe in fairy tales that aren't Christians. And so it's not even a very useful one along those lines. But you see how we can sometimes define others according to our negative perception of them instead of being accurate and generous. And so I've tried in our definitions to be accurate and generous towards different worldviews and not be slanted or mean spirited. All right, so the lack of belief in a God is how atheists like to define atheism. Um, Is that the most accurate, the most helpful definition for atheism from a Christian perspective? Probably not. And we can talk more about that uh, if the opportunity comes up. Um, But the lack of belief in a God, or the belief that there is no God, would be stating it in a slightly different way, but they prefer the former. They prefer the the lack of belief for reasons that an atheist would be happy to explain to you. Um, but I want you to just notice that the definitions are here. So if you go through the chart, and there's some words there that you don't know, first check the terms and definitions. And I don't know if I have all of them on there, so if there's one that you want to look up that's not on the terms and definitions, well, that's what dictionaries are for. Use a good online dictionary, or use a good old-fashioned book. Um, dictionary is one of the most useful tools in education. Uh, If if you are in homeschool, the online dictionary or the book dictionary should be one of the most grabbed resources. And so, thinking clearly involves defining words well and thinking clearly about the words that we're using. Now, let's get back to the worldview truth. So, we've already made it very clear that the most foundational elements of a worldview are, number one, theology, and number two, philosophy. So, what's the most foundational element of a tree? Roots. The roots. Yeah, if you don't have roots, your tree is done for. Now, it's not going to stand. It's going to be gone in the next windstorm. So, theology is the roots of the tree. You could write that down here on your roots. Theology. What's the second most foundational part of a tree? The trunk. The trunk, yeah. So your trunk is your philosophy. And then everything that comes from your theology and from your philosophy is going to be branching out into different fields of knowledge. Another word for knowledge is science. And so these are all of the different fields of study that you can study in human knowledge. It includes Ethics, it includes biology, it includes psychology, it includes sociology, law, politics, economics, history, art, anything uh, that you can come up with. Cooking. Uh, cooking is a science. Uh, it's part of knowledge, and knowledge is passed on from one generation to another. And you can read about it in books and understand why you know something caramelizes at a certain temperature, and understand the chemistry that's involved with it. It's all knowledge and knowledge being passed on. And every class that you're in is a class that is teaching you knowledge. And it's all based upon your theology and your philosophy. Now, in the 20th century and now into the 21st century, most people in our culture, in the world which you interact, are educated in all of the branches of knowledge in public school, government schools. Now, government schools, they don't teach philosophy very much at all. Uh, You can go to college, and there's a philosophy department, but hardly anybody's there, and nobody pays a lot of attention to it. Philosophy is not very important in public education and government education. It's not something they highlight or focus on. Theology is also not something that they're going to have a class on in kindergarten, or sixth grade, or twelfth grade, or even in college. You're not going to find a lot of theology courses in government education. Why is that? If, as I propose, philosophy and theology are, are king and queen of the sciences, the most important and foundational elements of education that impact everything else you believe about everything, why would the world, as the Bible calls them, not explicitly teach philosophy and theology when educating children? Yeah. Okay, how so? Um, well, in, let's take the Bible, for example. We have Jesus showing the Pharisees all the same things that they already know in a completely different view that they've
1: never seen before. And instead of trying to think about it and
0: determine whether or not it's actually true, uh-huh. they just decided to kill him. instead. Oh, people. good. Okay, I, I'm tracking with there. you now. I see where you're going with that. Uh, it's a good thought. I like that. Let me me also phrase it this way and put the question this way. Does government education have a theology? Does it have a philosophy? Yes. Every worldview has a philosophy. Every worldview has theology. You can see on the chart uh, that theology is theistic, atheistic, pantheistic, and there are some other options also available out there. And even within theism, you've got different kinds of theism, with Trinitarian theism versus Unitarian theism. So it's not like there, there is no theology, it's just not being focused on. It's just not being taught. And if something is there, but it's not being talked about, it's not being examined, then what is it? It is assumed. Okay? So there is an assumed theology and an assumed philosophy that is underlying. <laughs> The way that everything else is being taught to kids who are growing up in government schools. Now, what is the theology? What is the philosophy that is being taught in the government schools? Well, in the 20th century, it was largely secular humanism. All right, so you see the, the column there in your comparing competing worldviews handout, secular humanism. Now, before you get to the theology, there is something else underneath each one of those World views. And so this doesn't have anything in the left column uh, where you see Bible, Quran, humanist manifestos, Marx, Engels, uh, all that up along the top. Those are the sources of authoritative knowledge about the worldview. So this chart put not just the worldview up at the top of the chart, but also where the worldview is authoritatively taught or who uh, invented or promoted that worldview, where you can find a statement of what that worldview is. And so for Christianity, uh, at least Bible-believing Christianity, that authority is the Bible. Now, is that true for all Christians? Sadly, no. We'd like it if that was true for all Christians, and if everyone who claimed to be a Christian said that, the way I know what Christianity is is by what the Bible says. That would be great. And then we could have a discussion about what does the Bible say. But there are Christians who say, well, yes, the Bible is important for understanding what Christianity teaches, but also church tradition is important for understanding what Christianity is. And if you ever get into a a theological debate with a Catholic Christian, uh, then you'll find out that while the Bible is good in their mindset, their ultimate authority for what Christianity is, what it's supposed to be, is the teaching magisterium of the church and the history of the church's teaching in church councils. And so that replaces the Bible as their ultimate authority. And so that's where you get then different understandings of Christianity because you've got a different source of authority about what is Christianity. This council says Christianity is this. My reading of the Bible says Christianity is this. And that's where you get the differences, all right, in in the Christian worldview. So your authority is important for understanding, uh, you know, what is it. And so with Islam, there's uh, several different authorities there. And and if we get going throughout the year and we have time to look more at Islam, we'll we'll talk about the, the different branches of Islam. So even with Islam, there's not just one theology, but there are several different kinds of Islam that slightly different authorities that they look to to determine what is truth. Now, I want you to focus on the third column with me, secular humanism, because I said in the 20th century, the the main thing that was being taught to all the young people who were growing up in public schools, myself included, I was a public school kid, was secular humanism. And so let's take a closer look at the secular humanist worldview on this chart because it's one that's very important for what you're going to be meeting as Christian young people, as you go from home school out into the culture at large, they have been trained in secular humanism, but that dominant teaching in the public schools in the 20th century has recently been eclipsed by a competing worldview, a competing atheistic worldview of a mixture of postmodernism and Marxism. So you take a look at the Marxism, you take a look at the postmodernism, you mix those two together, and that will help you understand the worldview of, of most people being taught in public schools in the 21st century, right? And this is mostly what you're gonna be interacting with in the culture now. Not that there aren't still some, some secular humanists out there, uh, but they're getting much more rare, especially among young people. And among most of the young people, you're gonna find the postmodernist Marxists. So we'll talk more about that. But first, let's start with the secular humanists, all right? Um, now, as Christians living in America today, in the United States, you are a cross-cultural ministry, uh, missionary, right? Each one of you, if you are a Christian and you want to obey the teachings of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples of all the nations, then you are a cross-cultural missionary because the culture that you have been raised in, that you've been taught in your family and your church taught from the Bible, learned from Jesus Christ and the apostles, is very different from the culture that is being taught to most young people. And so, as a cross-cultural missionary, you need to be able to learn the mission field. You need to have some idea of what they mean when they say certain words. And this is uh, used in apologetic circles as red flag words. There's certain red flag words where different cultures, different worldviews have different definitions for those words. They're using the same word, but they mean very different things by those words. One of those words in our culture today is racism. The secular humanist and the Christian had a definition for racism in the 20th century that we agreed upon. But now, the postmodernist Marxists have come up with a new definition for racism that is different. And so, this group over here, with their worldview, is calling these people racist, and they're saying, no, we're not racist, but what they mean by racist is not the same thing that we mean by racist, and so communication breaks down, alright? And Satan thrives on communication breakdown. He loves confusion. He loves to be able to work through confusion, and through confusion he can create animosity and hatred and misunderstanding Lies and, and all kinds of evil, he can work through this. And so, you learning the different worldviews, you can start to be wise to translate from one worldview to another and say, What do you mean by that? All right, everybody say, What do you mean by that? Mean by that? that is a very important question, a very important tool to learn as a cross cultural missionary. That when somebody says, Hey, are racists and bigots you say well what do you mean by racist and then you listen carefully to their definition and then you start to analyze whether or not that's true you can talk about whether or not that's a good definition or there's lots of directions that the holy spirit can lead that conversation but it's got to start with understanding and listening and communication without communication nothing good happens And so being aware of the different worldviews is going to make you a skilled communicator to be able to go out and talk with people in a helpful way instead of just increasing confusion. All right? That's why this education, one reason why this is important. Now, when it comes to secular humanism, what is the source of authoritative information on what secular humanists believe? It's on the chart. What is it? Yes, the Humanist Manifestos, the one, two, and three. Now, I brought with me today Humanist Manifesto number one. It is outdated. It's been updated by Humanist Manifesto two and Humanist Manifesto three, but I bring Humanist Manifesto one for a very, I think, helpful purpose, helpful to us, but also helpful to the culture at large. So let me hand out to you uh, the Humanist Manifesto one with some highlights that I have put in there for our special attention. All right, Humanist Manifesto 1. What's the date there for Humanist Manifesto 1 uh, right after the first paragraph? 1933. 1933. You know, that might seem like a long time ago to you, but... Now that I'm 47 years old, I recognize how quickly time goes by, and so 1933 was only 42 years before I was born, and I was just born yesterday, so that's not that long ago, right? A couple days ago that Humanist Manifesto I was, uh, was written, and most of the names that are associated with Humanist Manifesto One you wouldn't recognize, and they're not important for us to know. But what is important to know is that the humanists in the early part of the 20th century, the 1930s, wanted to put together a statement of this is what we believe. This is what is our worldview. It's our basic presuppositions. And this is why we're uh, teaching the way that we teach and living the way that we live. And so this was a, a, a useful thing for a group to state their beliefs in a way that other people can can read and understand, well, what do you believe? What are you trying to do? Or why are you teaching what you're teaching? And so that's what they were trying to do here with a manifesto. Now, interestingly, Francis Schaeffer has a, a book or a sermon, maybe both, uh, entitled A Christian Manifesto, where he uh, lays out, in similar fashion to what the humanists did, the Christian worldview. And so maybe as an assignment, we'll see how things go. I'll give you an assignment to compare the Humanist Manifesto with the Christian Manifesto that Francis Schaeffer put together. Don't worry about that yet. Just something that's on my mind. All right. Now, notice the parts that are highlighted here on the Humanist Manifesto, because there's a, a key word that appears in the Humanist Manifesto that does not appear in the second and third Humanist Manifestos, and that is religious humanism. Notice that there in the second paragraph, in the sentence it says, In order that religious humanism may be better understood, we, the undersigned, desire to make certain affirmations which we believe the facts of our contemporary life demonstrate. All right? Um, So, they described humanism as religious in nature, in this manifesto. And as you go through the manifesto, you can see that repeated over and over again. All the sections that I've highlighted talk about religion, talk about values, talk about a, a frank religious discussion, um, talk about religion as a uh, establishing a religion. That's what they want to do. They want to establish a religion. Uh, they want to... Uh, Say that the time for theism and deism has passed, and that now is time for new thought. And notice in the seventh section, the seventh uh, point there. Religion consists of those actions, purposes, and experiences which are humanly significant. So that's a humanist definition of religion. Is that how a Christian would define religion? No, probably not. Is there some overlap there in the definition? Yeah, there's overlap. Uh, we would agree that religion has to do with things that are humanly significant, obviously. Uh, we are religious creatures, and so as religious creatures, that uh, our actions have moral, ethical significance. So there's overlap here, but there's, there's differences, and very key differences. Now, why do I point out to you that the early humanists used the word religion... And to describe themselves as religious humanists is because when you're talking about a worldview tree, what you're really talking about is a religion tree. Uh, because what has happened in the 20th century, and it's taken Christians a while to figure this out, that there's been a, a little switch o change pulled on us and that was, was ingenious and has worked masterfully for the, the humanists. How did the humanists take over the Education of children. How is it that we went from being a Christian nation at the beginning of the 20th century uh, to a secular humanist nation at the end of the 20th century? Well, it was largely by this means of hiding the fact that humanism is a religion. They stopped using the word religion to describe themselves. And they said, all right, we have to have schools that are not religious And hey, guess what? We're not religious. Oh, that works out really well for us. Uh, You Christians, I'm sorry, you can still come to our schools. We'd gladly educate your children, but we're going to educate them in a non-religious way. And what they meant by non-religious was humanist. So humanism became the only allowed philosophy and theology within education. And so they don't talk about philosophy and theology because they know that a lot of you young people are raised by Christian parents. And if they start teaching atheism in their schools directly, Christians will say, hey, wait a second. You can't teach my kids atheism because I'm a theist and I want my kids to be raised as theists. And they say, okay, we just won't talk about that. But we'll teach everything from an atheistic viewpoint. And so Christians grow up in the 20th century, going to church and Sunday school, learning about God, Then they go to school, and they learn about biology. They learn about psychology. They learn about sociology. They learn about law. They learn about everything else without reference to God. And at some point in their intellectual life, they have to make a decision. Am I going to believe in the theology that I was taught in Sunday school, which has nothing to do with anything else that I've learned about in life? Or am I going to believe in the secularism that has to do with everything I've learned about biology, everything I've learned about psychology, everything I've learned about sociology, everything I've learned about everything. And what do you think most people choose? The everything I've learned about everything, rather than this this one thing that doesn't fit. And so they were very smart to not talk about philosophy and theology directly, but instead just to assume a humanism, a naturalism, and teach everything else from that perspective, and that's why everyone loses their faith when they go to college. Why do so many Christians lose their faith when they go to college? It's because all their life they've been taught to view the world in a secular humanist way, and now they're fully developed in their intellectual life, and they've got to make a choice between what makes sense to me according to everything I've learned intellectually, or this small group of Christians in my family, and they choose to fit in with the world, and they choose what fits in with their understanding of the sciences. Now, is there a Christian understanding of biology? Yes. Does it have similarities to a secular humanist understanding of biology? Of course. Are there differences? Yes, there are. Which one is right? This is all tying in, and you start to understand the importance of understanding competing worldviews and comparing those with one another, what we are trying to do is we're trying to to train you to be able to understand the world through the Christian worldview. So we're not just teaching you theology, but we're teaching you theology that is going to impact your philosophy. And we're not just teaching you philosophy, but we're teaching you philosophy that's going to impact your understanding of the arts and the sciences. Uh, Why is science meaningful? Why is it useful? How do we have a a philosophical basis for for the scientific method? These were the the major issues and discussions that were then going on between Christian apologists and secular humanist apologists during the 20th century. But now, as I said, we've moved into the postmodern Marxist age in indoctrination. And so we've got whole new issues to deal with. Alright, so if you want to take time to to read through the Humanist Manifesto, uh, I recommend it, I might even assign it, and uh, take note of those highlighted sections especially, take take a look at that, to recognize that a worldview is a functional religion, alright? So secular humanism doesn't describe itself as a religion, but it functions in society as a religion. How do I know that? Um, here, this is important as well. Let me show you how secular humanism functions as a religion in society. Whether you want to call it a religion or you don't want to call it a religion, whether you just want to call it a worldview, I don't care that much. I, I prefer to call it a religion because then it's clear to everybody. But if you're just talking from an intellectual standpoint and you're not so much worried about the marketing, uh, it's not that important. But the key here is to understand that functionally a worldview acts like a religion in society and that these are competing with one another and that the advantage that we've given to secular humanism and not only secular humanism but any atheistic worldview by saying that schools have to be unreligious and by unreligious we mean they have to be functionally atheistic Functionally atheistic. That's what, that's what the public schools are. They, they do not attack theism directly, but they function atheistically. Uh, when, does, when do they uh, explore and teach the subject of God's existence? They don't. Uh, and therefore it functions as atheistic. Now, uh, in what I just handed out to you, we have some, some definitions of worldview, myth, and religion. And notice that the definitions of religion and myth I've taken from Wikipedia. The definition of religion is from dictionary.com and worldviews from Merriam-Webster. So I'm not getting these out of Christian apologetic resources, okay? These are the the definitions that have existed in our shared culture. The the, uh, multiple worldviews communicating together have found these, these definitions helpful that we can agree upon. Now, let me have one of you read for the class, the definition of religion from Wikipedia. Raise your hand if you re- read that for us, the definition of religion. Go ahead.
1: A set of beliefs concerning the cause nature, No, not on that one,
0: on um, this one. I want to just hand it out. Did you get that one? Worldview, myth, and religion at the top. Okay, great. is...
1: Let's
0: start with religion. religion.
1: I am not being <laughs> <laughs> Alright. A definition of religion from world Religion is a collection of culture, systems, and belief, belief systems and worldviews that relate to human and uh, that relate humanity and spiritually and sometimes to moral values. Many religions have narratives, symbols, traditions, and sacred histories that are indeed to give the meaning of life or explain the origin of life or the universe. They tend to derive morality, ethics, religious laws, or a preferred lifestyle from their ideas about
0: the cosmos and the human nature. So those who think about presuppositions and fundamental issues of beliefs, they are free from manipulation. Those who will not think about these things are going to be controlled by those who do, right? And so that's why you're here, is because I don't want you to be controlled by me, I don't want you to be controlled by the media, I don't want you to be controlled by the politicians, I don't want you to be controlled by the education system, I want you to be a free thinker who is able, on your own, to navigate through all of these most important beliefs and to be able to discern truth from error, all right? That's, That's the goal. So let's take a look here at this definition of religion from Wikipedia. Religion is a collection of cultural systems. Cultural systems, alright? So there's different cultures within a larger culture. You guys know about this? That there's a dominant culture, there's subcultures. The dominant culture in America today is the, the culture that has uh, the power over education. The power over entertainment. The power over finances, the power over law and government. That's the the dominant worldview. But just because they're the most powerful doesn't mean that they're the only worldview, that's not the only culture. So there's a a large culture that has a dominant worldview, but within that large culture, there's also subcultures with different worldviews. And these cultures have to live together. A, A culture is a group of people living according to shared beliefs. And so Religion is a collection of cultural systems belief systems and worldviews so the culture the beliefs the worldviews and what religion does is it relates humanity to spiritual values and sometimes to moral values now there I think the definition is is weak sauce because it's not sometimes it's all the time there's there's always a connection to moral values in a worldview so if I uh, were you and I were taking notes, I would take my pen or pencil and cross out the sometimes on that definition and just say, and to moral values, All right? to spiritual and moral values. Every definition can be improved. And here's an improvement that I would suggest to Wikipedia if they would allow someone of my worldview to interact, which they don't, um, Second, second sentence there. Many religions have narratives. What's a narrative? What's another word for narrative? Story. Story. They have stories. Symbols, traditions, sacred histories. Take out the word sacred there. Just say histories, okay? Uh, that are intended to give meaning to life or to explain the origin of life or the universe. Now, do public school kids get an explanation for the origin of life in the universe? Yes. yes, they do. What's the explanation for the origin of life and the universe taught in public schools? The Big Bang. Yeah, the Big Bang is the origin of existence and the origin of life. Well, that just kind of happened, you know? Chemicals, boom, life. Uh, not a very good explanation, but it is an explanation, alright? So notice that though the public school says we're not religious... They are giving a story, a history, that is intended to explain the origin of life or the universe. Now, why is that important? Well, what you believe about the origin of life and the universe is going to have a huge impact on your worldview. It's a very foundational presupposition that is going to be informing your understanding of science and art and human beings and all of that. Notice the, the quote down at the bottom of the page by Stephen Hawking. Anybody know who Stephen Hawking is? Raise your hand if you know the name Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking is a famous atheist, um, and he has been a a vocal proponent of his worldview and a vocal critic of Christianity. And notice what Stephen Hawking says. I think clearly there are religious implications whenever you start to discuss the origins of the universe, right? So there's something we can agree on. Secular humanist Stephen Hawking... Christian Timothy Schmidt, we agree that when you start talking about the origins of the universe, that does have significant religious implications. Uh, So, if the world is going to teach an origin of the universe that is based on an atheistic theology and that promotes a humanistic philosophy, then Christians should be aware of that. And Christians should be aware that if our children are learning that and it sounds true because people who are smart can show you diagrams and give you uh, scientific jargon to be able to make it sound true, then that's going to undermine their belief in the theology that they've been learning from their subculture. Okay? Very important. Now, notice the the rest of it here. They, They, that is religions, they tend to derive morality, ethics, religious laws or preferred lifestyle from their ideas about the cosmos and human nature. The cosmos. The world. That's science. Understanding the cosmos. Human nature. That gets into philosophy. And so you see that that religion, theology, is intricately wed together with the rest of the worldview tree, even according to the definition for religion on Wikipedia. Okay, Um, Now, take a look at the second definition there, on um, myth from Wikipedia. So there are branches of knowledge, and one of the branches of knowledge would be folkloristics, all right? Folkloristics. You don't have to write this on there, but I'm just making a point here. Now, folkloristics is not on the worldview chart, right? Uh, because if you were going to put every branch of human knowledge on the chart, it would be you know 37 pages long, probably longer than that. Uh, there's all different branches off of this world tree. It goes off into thousands of different branches. And you've got major branches that then uh, get off into minor branches. So folkloristics is a minor branch on probably the major branch of sociology. Um, and so then as you're studying different social groups, different cultures, you then start to study their myths. And if you study their myths, you're studying folklor- folkloristics would be the more uh, technical term for it in the academy, in uh, the university. All right? So the definition of myth is a, a technical definition that folkloristics, people who specialize in that study in universities would use to describe their, their academic study, their scientific study of myths in the world. And so, There are people who spend their whole life coming up with a good definition for what is it that I'm studying here, that I'm devoting my life to to understanding. So that's where these kind of definitions come from, right? So in folkloristics, a myth is a sacred narrative. Now, if you're an atheist, well, then nothing is sacred, all right? So you could drop the word sacred, but functionally, their myths function the same way as theistic myths or pantheistic myths. A pantheistic worldview has myths, a theistic worldview has myths, an atheistic worldview has myths. Now, when I use the word myth, I'm not using it according to the popular definition of something that is not true. That's how many people understand the word myth when they hear it. But I'm using the word myth in its more academic setting here, according to the the definition from Wikipedia. A myth is a narrative, a story, which is explaining how the world or humankind came to be in its present form. All right? So, you go to the Bible, and there's stories, myths, okay? According to the technical definition, doesn't mean they're not true. Myths about how the world came to be in its present form. And some of those most important foundational stories are right there at the beginning of the Bible Eve ate the fruit, she gave it to Adam, he ate from the fruit. That explains a lot about the world that we live in today, right? So, just as the Christian religion, worldview, has its story about how the world came to be the way it is today, so the atheistic worldviews also have their stories about how the world came to be the way it is today, and that informs how we're supposed to be living in the world today. If you understand where you came from and why you've gotten to the point you are, then that's going to have a huge impact, a, a determinative impact, on how you live your life, what you think your purpose and meaning in life is, what you're trying to do, all right? The big questions. Um so keep reading with me. It explains how the world or humankind came to be in its present form, a story that serves to define the fundamental worldview of a culture by explaining aspects of the natural world and delineating the psychological and social practices and ideals of a society. Right? So the myth is what gives society its form and what gives the individual his meaning. Myths are very important in the formation of a society. It's very, very foundational. All right? Now, take a look at the definition for religion that I pulled off of dictionary.com. Somebody want to read that out loud for us? The first definition for religion, number one? Wesley? A set of beliefs concerning the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe, especially when considered as the creation of a superhuman
1: agency or agency usually involving devotional or original observances, Mm -hmm. and often containing a moral code governing the conduct of human affairs.
0: Now, this is a 20th century definition that is largely uh, dominated by the humanist. And so, take out, uh, just maybe put uh, brackets around, the part of the definition that starts with especially and goes through ritual observances. Now, if you read it without that section, and you say, religion is a set of beliefs concerning the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe, and often containing a moral code governing the conduct of human affairs. That describes public education. Alright? That describes the secular humanist education. They are promoting a set of beliefs concerning the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe. You can read about this in the Humanist Manifesto. Not just one, but two and three also, if you want to. And, it contains a moral code. That are, are morals taught at The schools, yes, Uh, morals are gonna be taught everywhere. Now, secular humanists and Christian morals have a lot of overlap. The the secular humanists borrowed a lot of the ethics from Christianity and adopted them and have been teaching them, and so people haven't noticed as much, but there are some key differences where there are uh, a lot of conflict in our society between the morals, the ethics of the secular humanism and that of the Christians, right? Um, so I want you to see here that, that secular humanism is functioning as a religion. It's just an irreligious religion. It's an atheistic religion. And you'll never, you'll seldom get a secular humanist to admit to that because it's whole, the, the, their whole scam depends upon the fact that we don't recognize them as a religion. Uh, their whole ability to get government funding and, and be the only thing that's promoted uh, through our taxes is based upon this. And so they're not going to give that away. Uh, But I want you to see it. I want you to understand it as to uh, the the nature of a worldview as a functional religion. All right? Um, The second definition for religion on there can also be useful. There's usually multiple definitions because words are used in multiple ways. And the second definition is a specific fundamental set of beliefs. Notice fundamental set of beliefs. Uh, These are the fundamental beliefs, philosophical, theological beliefs that promote human values, right? What do we value? And there's different values among different religions, and secular humanism has different values than Christianity, um, that are agreed upon by a number of persons or sects. you can take out the word sect because it's always just used in uh, theistic or pantheistic uh, religions. Atheisms don't really talk about themselves as sects uh, because that's part of the scam, all right? Um... And then compare the definition for religion with the definition for worldview. You guys are doing great. Got about five more minutes. Stick with me. The definition for worldview, a comprehensive conception or apprehension of the world, especially from a specific standpoint. The standpoint is philosophy and theology. And then your understanding of the world is all the stuff up here in the worldview tree. You see that? This is is the standpoint, and this is the, the worldview. The worldview grows out of the standpoint. Alright, so those are very helpful, and the worldview tree is very helpful. We'll be referring back to the worldview tree throughout the semester, and we'll take some time looking more specifically at these worldviews, especially the postmodernist and Marxist worldviews, as that has become the dominant worldview among young people that you'll be interacting with the most as you go to work, as you... uh, live in our democratic republic, and as you watch the entertainment that is being produced by the postmodernist Marxists and is being sent out uh, to children at the youngest age possible to, to try to start to get them thinking according to an atheistic Marxist postmodern worldview. So that is the the big idea that I wanted to to set up our class with. So I appreciate you guys hanging tough with me in the lecture. We won't have a full hour and 15-minute lecture every time that you come here, but there's some foundation that I really wanted to to lay carefully today. So we'll be doing more interactive stuff as the semester goes along, doing some review games, um, as well as setting aside time for quizzes and speeches, So, we've got a lot uh, on our plate, and I'm looking forward to it. As far as the homework goes for the upcoming week, let's read the second chapter in Francis Schaeffer's book. We're going to kind of start the year with a focus on Schaeffer. How should we then live? Going from Rome now, we're going to be looking at the Middle Ages, which is a, a, a big chunk of history there. And so, we're moving very quickly through ancient history and medieval history so that we can get to the modern age, which is where. We live and understand the time that we live in. So read chapter two. And there is the handout that uh, was on the music stand that has the outline for chapter two that you can use as you watch the video. So just like last week, watch the video first with the handout. You can jot down extra notes on the handout. Then read the book. Then answer the questions that are on the handout. And next week we'll spend some time talking about your answers to those questions I'm going to give you more opportunity to speak and share uh, your answers to the questions from chapter one make sure you bring those with you and the questions from chapter two which you'll be doing this week and I'm also going to send out a little bit more homework not exactly sure what yet as long as as well as some more extra credit opportunities so did everybody get the email for the homework this last week I didn't. Okay, uh, write down your email on a piece of paper and hand it to me and I'll make sure you get on that list. Sorry about that. Any questions about the homework? Any questions about worldviews and the worldview tree? Yeah? what uh, word uh, sacred comes
1: a lot. Do you yes. You that word?
0: So sacred is something that is held to be very special. And that if you uh, insult it or you go against it, it it's very offensive to people. Now, normally, people who are atheistic will not use the word sacred to describe uh, things in their worldview. And yet, functionally, there's still things that they hold as sacred because if you contradict them or if you speak against them, they get very angry. So, if you speak against something that is sacred, you get a, an emotional, strong, sometimes violent response uh, from people. So you kind of figure out, oh, they hold that as sacred. It's something that's very special, it's something that uh, they hold in high regard. So for us, God is sacred. And that's why in the Old Testament, you know, the, the penalty for blaspheming the name of God was the death penalty. Uh, a violent reaction to uh, treating with disrespect something that is highly respected. Something that is sacred is something that is held in highest respect. Um, recently in our culture, you did have. Uh, politicians using the word sacred to describe the Capitol and that the January 6th riot uh, was, you know, an attack on this, the sacred halls of democracy. And so they would use that word to, to describe uh, their, their government offices as being sacred. Uh, so there are things that, you know, uh, people in government hold as sacred and everybody has things that they hold as sacred, whether they are atheistic, theistic, or anything else. But yeah, that's a, a great question. It's one of those words that's kind of hard to get a grasp on, but you kind of get a feel for it. And that's the way it's often been with the word holiness, the word sacred. These are related concepts. Yeah. I have a follow-up
1: question for that. So in the definition for religion from Wikipedia, you had us cross out sacred histories. Uh-huh.
0: Why? Because I want you to see that the non-religious worldviews have histories, even if they don't call them sacred histories. So we refer to the Holy Bible. Uh, they don't refer to the Holy Darwin, uh, but they functionally it, it works the same way. It's, it's the foundation for their beliefs about the world and, and how they understand our place in the cosmos. So they don't use the word, but functionally it's the same. I'm just trying to make that connection. Yeah. If you haven't checked in, maybe me your We do that for you. Yes. And uh, how many do you have that need to do that? So some of them might not be here, but we have a here. Okay. Great. Um, so yeah, definitely make sure you get your homework checked in with Lori. Otherwise, I'm just going to count it as late, uh, and late doesn't get as much credit as being on time. But I'd rather have it be late than not be done at all. So if you haven't done it and you bring it next week and show it to Lori, I'll give you partial credit for being late. All right? Any questions about that?: Great. Well, have some fun, hang out, inside, outside, wherever you want to be. Thank you, thank you. You're welcome.